Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave. Wake up, America. Wake up. The political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is a show where we are exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in a country as divided as our country has become. Now look, from the beginning of this show, I have tried to bring you voices and perspectives of all kind of people, all kind of people from a range of different opinions, different backgrounds, different beliefs. Some of the people that I've brought on this program you've heard of, some of them you have not. Today, I'm bringing you a very big name. It's Matt Schlapp. Now, he is one of the biggest conservative voices in the country, one of the biggest conservative voices in the world, honestly. And he leads one of the most important conservative organizations on the planet, the American Conservative Union. He's also the chairman of the Conservative Political Action Coalition, or CPAC. And so you can Google CPAC and see that he is a part of and at the middle of every conservative and right-wing movement, not just in the United States, but around the world. Now, if you've heard of Matchlab and you are a liberal or a progressive or a Democrat like me, you probably mostly only heard all the bad stuff, or what we would consider the bad stuff, uh, particularly because he did choose to stand with Donald Trump in raising concerns about the last election. On the left, we would call him a purveyor of the big lie. That's how we see that position. And, you know, he's been tough on a number of issues, and he and I disagree on most of them. But I know the guy. I actually know Matt Schlapp. He and I have worked closely together on criminal justice reform. We actually helped to save the life of somebody who was on death row who was going to be put to death and shouldn't have been. He cares about the justice system because it's a part of his commitment to liberty and justice for all, as he would say. And he encourages people in his party to do the same. There's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of violence. I don't think we talk about that enough. There's a lot of violence. And I think the violence, I'm sadly, I, I, don't, I don't see ebbing anytime soon. And I really worry about that. How do we find what, what we have in common again? How, how, how do we find a, a national purpose, you know, with all the diversity and everything else? How do we find that again? And I think it's important for us as this uncommon ground community to actually to listen to and hear from people who their public profile and public persona may give you one impression, but I want you to have a more nuanced view. And it's not because I agree with Matchlab. As you will see, we don't agree. But it's because there's something more important in a democracy than just agreement and disagreement. You're supposed to disagree in a democracy. In a dictatorship, you can't disagree. That's the whole point of freedom is you you get to disagree with each other. But the key is you also have to understand each other. You got to try to understand where the other person is coming from, even as you disagree, even as you vote against them, even as you march against them. You still need to have an understanding of where are these folks coming from? Why are they coming from that place? And I don't think there's anybody on the American right who is more important for progressives and independents and others to understand 
than someone who wields the influence of a match lab. You'll hear from him after this break. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Match slap. Good to see you, brother. Welcome to Uncommon Ground. Great to be with you, man. You know, the last time we were together in public, I was at CPAC. We both caught some flack from that, but I think we had a good time together. But the last time I actually saw you, we were in a prison in Pennsylvania trying to help people behind bars turn their lives around. That's right. CPAC prison, which uh, was kind of a crazy sounding idea. And then everyone took credit for it after we did it because it was it was quite a memorable experience. And for me, I, I marked that in my life as one of the the last great moments, you know, when we had that big bipartisan coalition working on criminal justice stuff in a, at a very, very high level. And I think a lot of people probably don't know that about you. You take this stuff very personally. You show up behind the scenes. And uh, I'm very scared about the country coming apart. I wanted to give you a chance just to say just who you are, where you're from, where'd you grow up? And you're, you're, everybody hears your name. It's like you, you have no origin story, though, for people on the progressive side. And then I want to just bump through some issues to see if we might find it's not common ground, just a little bit better understanding of each other, why we seem to be coming apart. I welcome the opportunity, Van. I consider you a friend. I think we probably do disagree on a ton of things, but there's a human decency that connects people and politics that we can't forget. And I think there's almost an intentional desire to forget anything that brings us together, any bonds. So if the extent to which we can put some of that to the side, I think would be really useful. I'm not probably not very articulate in talking about myself. I I kind of grew up all over the country. I was born in Cleveland. I was uh, raised in Houston. I was an Oilers fan as a kid, uh, Burnsville, New Jersey. Uh, and then finally, I ended up in Kansas, in Wichita, Kansas. I consider Kansas my home. You know, uh, I had a, a little bit of an interesting childhood. My father died in his 40s. He was an alcoholic. Uh, he he had been successful, but kind of fizzled out in life. He and I had, did not have a good relationship. And I always kind of had to figure out my own way. And so uh, I'm probably too prideful over the fact that I've developed into the man I am. Pride is the wrong word. My uh, biblical teaching, I know that that's, uh, that's a deadly sin, but I, I certainly take 
um, stock of the fact that um, I've had to create a life for myself in many ways and take care of the people that I love. And I think that kind of self-reliance, even though God is a big part of that, is uh, an important part of who I am. And one of the reasons why I get so chafed about the politics of today is everybody's always trying to ascribe to me the worst motives when I actually think throughout my life I've tried to be there for my loved ones, try to take care of people, try to be decent. Uh, and I think that's more important than anything that comes in politics. And so I'm probably too thin-skinned when it comes to some of these things get thrown around, the isms and everything else that get thrown in your face, because it hurts. It really, if it didn't bother you, you wouldn't care. But it, it, it's worrisome, you know, and, it, and I don't like it. You know, I think a lot of people in public life, people have no idea, you know, where we come from. <laughs> they have no idea why we do what we do. Uh, we just become either, you know, people to give applause to or just images on people's dartboards. You know, your, your life is uh, interesting. You go through these challenges and it helps build you into the person you are. I think I am, people are surprised because I'm pretty amiable and friendly, but um, I'm as stubborn as a, you know, a wall of rock uh, on certain things. And most of that is because that's how I, those are, those are the, the kind of tactics I had to develop to survive as a child and, uh, and kind of get to where I am. And it's funny because my sister always gets so mad at Twitter when people say these really terrible things. And she's like, you don't know the first thing about who my brother is. And I always tell her, I was like, sis, give it a rest. Don't go to Twitter to try to seek justice. <laughs> hey, look, I've, I've got a twin sister. She's the same way. She gets so mad. But, you know, I think you mentioned the isms or whatever. I mean, you get, you get called everything under the sun. White supremacists, white nationalists, all these different things. Why does it bother you? Because of a conflict with my dad, because that was one of the things we had conflict over. He was from a generation where he probably had more Archie Bunker views on questions of race and differences culturally. You know, he was a New Yorker and he was tribal and he was for his tribe and the other tribes weren't as good. And I mean that racially and religiously and ethnically. And uh, he and I had a lot of division over that. And I remember getting to big fights around the Christmas table and the Thanksgiving table, and he'd have his jokes, which I didn't think were funny. And, you know, so it's like, that's just who I am. That's part of who I am. And maybe that's generational. Maybe that's just because of what my faith taught me. But, you know, what I realized today is for too many people, it doesn't matter what you think in your heart. What matters is what you look like and what they can lampoon you as. And I always used to say to folks, like, when places like CNN and MSNBC used to ask me to be on, and I was on, in many cases, daily for years. And I always used to say, they don't just want white. They want, like, really white, like white hair. <laughs> Please wear a white shirt. You know, it's like, come on, go full on. Go Make full this on. sky as white as possible. Because it's an easy thing to lampoon. You're a, you're a paunchy, white-haired, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, pink skin guy, and we're going to, to say what's in your heart. And I just think one of the things I admire about you is the fact that for whatever reason, you've had a really good career, which is great, but the uh, you seem to be beyond where a lot of people can't get beyond, which is I got to get more Twitter followers or I got to be clever in my response. I probably fall victim of trying to still stay in that world. And I really will try to do the right thing. Why is that? Well, because when I look at myself in the mirror, I want to be proud of what I look at, and I want my kids to be proud of what they look at. And when I fall short of that, and I do, I don't feel very good about myself. So I think it's kind of basic. I think it's simple. Part of the reason I wanted to have you on is, you know, I do know you, and yet we, we vote different. We see things different. And the part, part of the value I've had in our friendship 
is you help me understand how folks on the other side feel about stuff. You know, the things that, that your team is not just mad about, but even scared about. And that helps me do my job a little bit better. So part of what I want to do is just to give you the opportunity. So for instance, some of the stuff that, that's in the news, you know, say the, the raid on Mar-a-Lago. Okay, now by the time this airs, we'll, have, we'll know a lot more. But when that went down on my side of the table, I think we felt like, well, I mean, I worked in the White House. If I left with a bunch of stuff, they'd come to my house. But it landed very differently, I think, for the conservatives. I think I heard conservatives talking about Gestapo. I heard conservatives talking about a lot of stuff. When something like that happens, you know, former president gets raided, how does that land for you personally and, and, and the, the people that you care about? And, and, and how would you have preferred something like that, like that be handled? Conservatives are very, very concerned with kind of a police state and uh, the power of the government to kind of just mess up your life willy-nilly. And they're very strong into protections when it comes to those things. You know, conservatives believe that eventually things will get so bad where because of their political views, they'll find themselves on the wrong side of the law. And I think that for Republicans, when that's a different universe than conservatives. I mean, let me be clear. You know, it's not all the same. The belief was that because the national government's based in Washington, D.C., almost all of the federal prosecutions take place in Washington, D.C. And then, of course, you have the Southern District of New York in these places. You know, they're just no longer favorable. But specifically in the swamp, in this area where I live, I'd be honest with you, I think they could indict me for almost anything they wanted to if they really wanted to. And that's scary. It shouldn't be that way in this country. And I think it shouldn't be because of your politics. When you say you're scared about your country, you, for me, if you want to put your finger on what I'm the most scared about is that there's an increasing desperation from a lot of red state people that they can't get fairness from their government. And when the government does, look, you can like Trump or don't like Trump. I know for you, um, you dealt with Trump on issues that you could find you know, common ground on, like you're talking about. And you took a lot of guff because you were willing to say, okay, I can go over there and try to get the thing done that I want done with this guy who people hate. But, you know, you can't hate a guy so much that you would do things with police power that you wouldn't do with someone else. So you can have Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama taking uh, information they shouldn't have taken and they didn't have the proper custody on information. And everyone says, oh, this must have been mistakes. And she wasn't trying to do anything wrong. She's certainly not you know, involved in espionage or anything like that. So like, you know, you try to get the documents back. You try to figure out, is there a way to recreate the record? Hillary Clinton famously was looked at by James Comey. You know, the left and the right, they might have a lot of commonality on whether James Comey handled that right because it sort of looked bad from my point of view. He seemed pretty ham-handed to me on how he handled it. But in the end, he was trying to make a point that she had done some things wrong with the chain of custody of these things. But he knew he wanted to be shy of indicting her, especially while she's running for president. And this is the, one of the things we've lost with humility, which is there should be a humility about the federal government in certain areas, too. And one of them is, look, if you run for president or if you've been president, we ought to be awfully careful before it looks like we're just going after the guy who's no longer in power because that's what they do in these third world countries. One of the reasons why these people run for president forever, Van, is because when they stop running for president, they were put in prison. And... I think America's starting to look like that. We were chanting lock her up to her. They're chanting lock him up to Trump. Are we going to get to the point where the loser of the election is going to soon to be indicted by that next, you know, attorney general? That is, that, that is not a good place for this country. 
So look, the, the reason I wanted you to, to say all that, especially, you know, the comparisons between, you know, Hillary Clinton and her server or whatever versus Donald Trump is, um, I think a lot of people who are liberals and progressives, you don't hear that comparison. In other words, what you're saying is you think there's an unfair justice system. You feel that you might be targeted by it. You're seeing some things that seem hypocritical to you. And that makes you worry, like, hey, where's this going? And that resonates with a lot of stuff that we say on our side. I'll be honest with you. Let me tell you where I think I'm going. I think there's a decent chance I'll be in prison. I really do. I think if I continue on this course, and if I've seen as kind of a pugnacious conservative, and I live in a blue jurisdiction, I think it's a matter of time before, you know, they really want to get me. They'll find something. They can find something on everyone. You know, there's that famous uh, colleague of uh, Stalin who said, show me the man, I'll find the crime. I mean, that's kind of where we are. So once again, it goes back to this idea of what's the commonality on a criminal justice system that's out of whack is it's not just maybe poor people in cities that can be a victim of it. Anybody who runs afoul of overpowering Leviathan can be the victim of it. And I think we're in a very, very dangerous position where I don't think it's getting better. As good as the work as you've done, I think it's getting worse. I mean, I think we have some real achievements on criminal justice reform, especially at the state level. I think it's still rolling. But, uh, man, I just I think at the federal level, we are in a dangerous place. I see it somewhat differently in that, I mean, what's missing from your story, if you're progressive, what's missing from your story is Donald Trump taking responsibility for his side of it. In other words, I think conservatives in general believe a lot of personal responsibility, that kind of stuff. And in this situation, Trump has done stuff that, you know, you can draw some distinctions between what he did and what Hillary, what Hillary Clinton did. Or how do you know what the truth is? That's the other piece, which is we used to have common idea of truth. There was real journalism. You could kind of, I think it's broken up. So like, where do yeah, you how, go, how do you, know, how you know, to get how that? How do you get the, the balls and the strikes right? Uh, how do I even know, Van? How do I know what's in those 10 legal boxes of documents? How do you know anything? Well, and, and unless it was like videotape from beginning to end, and then you could say, well, the videotapes were doctored. So, so we are in this big trust collapse. And I think that that's very dangerous for a democratic republic. The thing that should scare everybody is that when we say, when we say the United States is the oldest democracy in the world. Well, wait, hold on a second. We're only like 250 years old. We had 10,000 years of human civilization and, and the oldest democratic republic is even 300 years old. That means these must be very hard forms of government to hold on to because there have been democracies in the past. So this is a very fragile uh, system. It's a, it's, a, it's a miracle in human history what we've been able to achieve, to have a democratic republic with you know every color, every faith, every kind of human being ever born in one country. And we actually have been able to make it work for this long, but it requires some trust. And to your point, if you're a liberal, you say, look, I'm scared. I'm scared the Republicans are going to take over. I'm scared the Republicans are going to take away my rights. I'm scared the Republicans are going to, you know, uh, uh, cook the planet with fossil fuels and don't care. I'm scared to, they're going to take away women's rights. Issues. I'm scared the Republicans are going to take over and ruin my life. But what you don't always think about is there's fear on the other side. You know, Matt Schlapp is no easy, you know, pushover. This is a big dude <laughs> um, and one of the most powerful people in the country. And he thinks he might wind up in jail. Now, I don't know that we have those conversations. With, uh, there's literally one of the most powerful people in the country who's not sure he can trust America not to put him in jail for his political views. Now, how do we get into that situation where there's that much fear and lack of trust on either side? 
And is there anything you think we could do to start trying to heal that? Because you can't run a democratic republic if both sides think the other side's homicidal. You know, there was there was a point in the swamp where, you know, we could have a party at our house and we could invite pretty much anyone in politics and nothing was out of bounds. Everything was fine. And then out of, out of nowhere, that kind of, that's ended. Like we noticed that like we didn't get invited to these things anymore. And the White House Correspondents' Dinner was no longer like a safe zone to go and kind of get mocked in a good natured way. And like, it just kind of all dried up. And, you know, someone asked me over the course of the last week, uh, attorney friend of mine, like who's, who's responsible and who's at fault. And we started going through like Richard Nixon and Newt Gingrich and Jim, Wright. Like I love history, but I don't know how useful all that is. I think the, the point is, is this, which is of all those countries you talked about that were around for about 250 years, some shape, manner or form, there was some kind of citizenship and, they had some kind of voice in their government. I'm sure it wasn't very perfect. But the difference with ours was is it wasn't based on you know a specific ethnicity or a certain country. Like we weren't all from France or we weren't all from Great Britain. Or we, it, was a, it was a little bit of a hodgepodge. Of course, mostly white, Western, European. I get that completely and mostly Christian, um, overwhelmingly Christian. And then there was a native population. So without getting into all the complications of what makes America, we were unique and that everybody, almost everybody came here from other places and tried to figure out how are we going to put a government together. And I think what made us so exceptional in the beginning was a diverse experience, at least to the extent to which I described. That doesn't seem to be a strength anymore. It seems to be our weakness, which is no one trusts anybody. There's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of violence. I don't think we talk about that enough. There's a lot of violence. And I think the violence is, I'm, sadly, I, I, don't, I don't see ebbing anytime soon. And I really worry about that. How do we find what, what we have in common again? How, how, how do we find a, a national purpose, you know, with all the diversity and everything else? How do we find that again? You know, I, well, I spent some time with my daughter. We have these CPACs all over the world. We had a CPAC in Israel. We had a CPAC in Hungary. I took my daughter to Paris. We have it the worst. I mean, even in Israel, we hate each other. We hate each other more than I see in these, certainly these other European countries. We just, the animosity levels are off the charts. How do you respond to, say, a progressive? Suppose, you know, this makes somebody up. You got a 27-year-old African-American lesbian or something, and she says, look, I don't think that if Matt Slap and his crew were in charge, that I would be safe. I think I wouldn't have rights. I think I would be vulnerable. I, I, don't, I don't think Matt Slap would protect my voting rights. I don't think Matt Slap would stick up for me you know, if, if I was being fired for being a lesbian or, or, or something like that, like, I think Matt Schlapp's trying to get power to hurt me. First of all, do you, do you understand why somebody might feel that way? Yeah, of course. I think that I could argue the opposite. You know, I don't want her to be safe. I mean, where does she live? No offense. Does she live in Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York City, Chicago, where crime is skyrocketing? I don't think it's American to be this unsafe in the streets and to have this kind of chaos in the streets. You know, as far as her sexual preferences or whatever else, I think most people with my uh, political views believe in freedom and people have the right to live their life. Our demarcation is you have the right to be who you want to be as an adult, as long as you're not hurting a kid or something, but you don't have the right to go to someone of faith, someone who has strongly held Christian views or or whatever views they are, and tell them that they can't have those views uh, because somehow that damages their ability to live their life. And that's where the, that's where the, 
the respect and the trust has to happen. The, the conservative Christian in America doesn't want to have to be told that they can't have the full expression of their religious views. And the person that wants to live their life um, as a member of the LGBTQ community doesn't want to have Christians, when they're elected to office, somehow bring the moral police down on the decisions they're making. And I actually don't think it's that hard because we do this mostly as a society anyway, which is people have the right to teach their kids their religious views. And I don't think it's right for the state or anybody else to come in and tell their parents that that they're, they're teaching them hatred and intolerance if they're teaching them what they believe are biblical truths. And I think for most people that look, most of the people I know in the LGBTQ community are Republicans. But I think there's an increasing view uh, from those folks. Of, it's a little bit of the leave me alone caucus. It's like, hey, why don't you just let me li- live my life? And let me tell you, I think for most conservatives in America today, they're the ones who are saying, hey, would you just leave me alone? You won't even leave me alone. If I want to put up my Trump flag, let me put up my Trump flag. If I want to put my pro-life sticker on, let me put my pro-life sticker on. I'm not telling you what you got to do, but leave me alone. Don't make me feel like I'm a pariah because I have these views. And believe it or not, Van, for a lot of Republicans in this country, when it comes to the treatment by corporate America, which is now so hostile to these viewpoints, professional sports, which is so hostile to these viewpoints, they feel like they're the hunted for having their views. And by the way, the worst thing that's happening in our country is people who have my views and I probably would be like this, except that I just kind of got pushed in front of everything. But um, they're hiding their views because they feel like if they express them, that they'll be told that they're bigots or they're haters. And so what you have is a lot of non-expression of people's views. That's not making those views ebb. That's making those views get a harder edge to them. And I don't think it's a healthy thing at all. I think I think our founders were right. The reason why we believed in free speech in this country is because the more people have the chance to speak, even if it's hateful, the more they felt like a good population would root out the bad ideas and embrace the good. I think a couple of things in just response to what you, what you said. This trying to set the, the the table in the right way so that you know people can have freedom. I think I think you know, human freedom and human dignity is the common ground for for all sides. If there's any common ground left, it's just the idea: freedom is good, dignity is good. How do you get there? You know, as a person of faith, we share that I'm Protestant, you're Catholic, but there is this challenge around: can we have a, a situation where someone can use their religious ideas to discriminate against someone else? That's how it lands on our side. So, for instance, you know, uh, back in the day, they would say, "Well, God separated the races," and the curse of Ham. They would go in the Bible and say, "You know, so, you know, the, the the children of Ham were cursed, and the curses." is you know, they could just make that up as black skin. So you guys are the children of Ham. God separated us. So they were using Christianity to justify segregation. And I think at this point, everybody would say, well, that was an abuse of scripture. And you can't say, well, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm not going to let a black person come into my store. So that's where it gets tricky when we, when we want to defend people's religious freedoms, including my own religious freedoms. And at the same time, we do want, say, a lesbian couple to be able to get a cake made at a bakery or something like that. I think there's gradations of differences there. So like if you're running a store, like what are you going to ask people like who they sleep with before they come in the store? No, of course that's impractical. Uh, I wouldn't even consider doing that. But I think the question on the cake, the reason why the cake was such an important point is that baker in Colorado, 
he had strongly held views where he felt like marriage is between a man and a woman, and he didn't want to be forced to be complicit with going against his views. And his his belief was that couple should just go someplace else to get their cake made. He, had, he didn't want to hurt them. He didn't want to have any, any animosity. But he was religiously convicted not to participate in any way uh, with that wedding. I think that is clearly within his rights under the First Amendment to decide what cake he's going to bake and what cake he's not going to bake. I think it would have been different if it's just a gay customer coming in and saying, hey, I want a cake. And he says, hey, I heard you were at a gay bar and I don't want to give you any cookies. I mean, I'd, that's not what this was. This was an endorsement, he thought, an implied endorsement of a marriage between um, two people of the same gender. So, you know, there are gradations of difference here. I think that there are people in our society that are trying to create the flashpoints. And I think that we've gone way too far in the flashpoints, which is my guess is that Baker, um, I don't know him, never met him, but my guess is the Baker is probably not the evil person he gets portrayed as some kind of hater. I think all he was saying is, could you please just leave me alone let me run my bakery, let me make my own religious decisions. And so I think this is what we were able to do as a country for a long time. Now, one of the reasons why we were able to do it for a long time is we did have discrimination. And uh, I think we've changed a lot of these ideas on how to treat people who have different ideas and want to live their life in a way that's different from the way you want to live your life. And I just think we have to figure out a way to continue to do that. And yes, there's going to be times when someone says, boy, this hurts. You know, the, the level of protection is not where I want it, or that boundary is not where I want it. But do you want to rip apart a whole society and a great country because we have differences? And that's what I just really don't want to do. Every day is a great day when you're not worrying about your appliances and home systems. And that's what you get with an American Home Shield warranty. With American Home Shield, you can protect your home and wallet from unexpected breakdowns like leaky faucets or faulty water heaters or wonky thermostats. Now that's something to celebrate. When it comes to protecting your appliances and home systems, don't worry, be warranty. For 20% off plans, go to ahs.com slash Wondery. For more details, see ahs.com slash contracts for coverage details, including limit amounts, fees, limitations, and exclusions. The NCAA women's basketball had an incredibly successful season, and now your favorite players from the 2023 to 2024 NCAA season will be in the WNBA. To all our veteran fans, welcome back. And to all the new fans joining, welcome to the W. This season, watch as proven legends Brianna Stewart, Asia Wilson, and Sabrina Ionescu continue their dominance, while rookies Caitlin Clark, Cameron Brink, and Angel Reese prove themselves on a WNBA court. The WNBA is redefining basketball on their own terms this season, keeping the game and players front and center while celebrating the intersection of identities and perspectives that align with fans. Welcome to the W. You're in for some world-class basketball. We can go back and forth on, on this stuff. I think for me, the most important thing is that, you know, you, you are a major conservative leader. You're saying things that 20 years ago, 10 years ago, I think would have probably been applauded by people on the progressive side because you're, you're saying, listen, people have the right to get married. They have the right to do these things. 
but there are some things that you want to protect on your side. That's not the same as saying, I hate all gay people. And so I disagree with you. I, I think that if you if you hang out the shingle that, that, you know, and you're a public corporation or those things, I think you got to serve everybody the same. You see it somewhat differently. But I do want to point out, this is a much better conversation than even in 2012. The best president we've ever had, Barack Obama, was afraid to say that he was for marriage equality 10 years ago. So we have moved, you know, I think in a positive direction. And I do think these things get heated. There's fear on both sides. Well, let me let me just res- just say one thing to, to put maybe an end to that part of the conversation. The modern American state has done a lot of progressive things in, in the rule of law. I don't agree with, but that doesn't mean that I want to force somebody to have a view that they simply just don't agree with. I think that's not going to get us very far. You know, all this stuff is going to be coming to a head in the elections. And I want to just move over to that. I'm very concerned about 2024. I think we've come to a place where all these issues are very polarized and very, very uh, closely felt. And I think Republicans don't trust Democrats to cast our votes fairly without cheating. And I don't think Democrats trust Republicans to count our votes fairly and without cheating. And so you've got this this standoff now where I think Republicans have come to feel that Democrats just cheat all the time and they're going to stuff ballots and they're going to do stuff that's that's like unfair. And I think on our side, we say, well, hold on a second. We see these moves to get pro-Trump people in positions of power in terms of secretaries of state and governors. We see these laws coming out saying you can't even bring water to somebody standing in line. We think that they're trying to be in a position to gerrymandering everything else to dilute our vote, to suppress our vote, and even to steal our vote. And that is a very dangerous situation because what it could mean is that after 2024, one side or the other just won't accept the result. Going forward, how do we get to a place where we at least have the most fundamental part of our democracy uh, respected, which is a cheat-free election where people respect the outcome of the vote? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, there are some proposals that are being thrown out by conservatives, which mirror what they do in a lot of other countries, a lot of European countries, like have a national holiday on election day. Like, don't give anybody the excuse that I had to get to work for the reason why they couldn't vote and make it easy for people to vote. And so you have this idea where I think it's easy to, I would say, mischaracterize the Republican position where we don't want too many people to vote. We want to make it a little bit hard to vote because... Boy, if everybody really voted, we'd get killed. We'd just get swamped because our positions aren't popular. And I don't think that's right. I do think we have an electoral college system, and people can argue whether they like or don't like that. But under that system, uh, I'd be very open to making it as pain-free and as easy for everyone to vote. I would much rather have every legal person vote, be told they had to vote, than this system that we have right now where one side can mischaracterize my side is we're trying to prevent legal, lawful voters from voting. And the other side is so radicalized in fear of whoever candidate I might be supporting that I don't think it's all the Democrats that are cheating, by the way. I just think that there was a very unfortunate $417 million program under very loose rules in these cities um, that allowed for people to really have grave questions. And I think, you know, as long as you're a registered voter, and as long as you follow those election laws, you're having this increasing and pervasive idea that 
figuring out who the winner is of an election is just too complicated. It's too murky. And I, that is wrong. Democracies all over the world have figured this out. And I think we better figure this out. And if it means I got to give a little bit on the fact that there's a holiday, which I, I hate giving out more federal holidays, I think we have enough. But if that's what we got to do to restore this, uh, maybe, maybe, you know, you and I have talked about this. Maybe there are some standards we could, maybe there's some kind of coalition that could be put together to say, look, this is what we have to do for everybody to have confidence. I can just tell you this from the bottom of my heart and maybe for your audience. So just think I'm really full of it, but I, I know for myself, I will participate in nothing that has as its goal trying to keep people of color from casting their lawful vote. Why do I feel that way? Well, I think there's a moral question. But, you know, I'm a Abraham Lincoln Republican. Our whole party was started to give these people the vote to make sure back in the 1860s that former slaves got their full civil rights. Now, maybe, maybe those Republicans didn't think a black man and a white man were the same. I'm not going to tell you that they had the same views as people do today, but they did understand that they were created by God, they were human beings, and they deserved their full civil rights. And I think my party, the extent to which it participates in anything that would you know, make it harder or deny people their ability to rights because of racial reasons or anything else, I think we'd be a short-term party. I think we'd be headed for, you know, it's a bad strategy. Uh, it's too easy to discover. Well, like I think what I what I would say about that is that you know this rash of of um, Republican bills that are really in, really pushing in the opposite direction. Of what you're saying, you're saying, and I look, I agree with you. I would like to see more people come into the system and vote because I think you know voting is an important act of of ownership of yourself and ownership and in, in, in having ownership stake in your country. And I also think that it would be good for everyone to have more confidence in it because we we. We've agreed that we want that confidence. I think that what cuts the other way is that you had a bunch of Republican bills that got passed that seemed to be more restrictive, that seemed to say, um, well, we didn't like the election outcome in 2020, and so now we're going to make it harder. Again, the Georgia bill that says you can't bring water to somebody standing in line and other bills like that. And now you said you wouldn't want somebody doing something like that for racial reasons, but maybe it's not racial reasons anymore. Maybe it's just pure partisan reasons or some other reason, but I still think illegitimate reasons to make it harder to vote. How do you respond to that concern? I don't fear everyone voting. That is not what I fear. What I fear is what happened last time, and let's not relitigate it, but what we did last time is because big cities are dominated now by one party. You know, I did the Florida recount, Van. I don't know if you did in 2000. But, you know, that was the right model. People can say it was the wrong outcome, but the model was in every, through every court was you will have a Democrat observer and a Republican observer and then the county official adjudicating that ballot. But both people got to watch. They could tape it, right? More transparency is what you need. By the way, it's easy for Republicans to complain because we're not getting the beneficiary of any of this corruption in the big cities, which I think was on display, unfortunately, in 2020. But, you know, what happens in these Democrat primaries? right? If you're going to allow local officials to decide when they use voter ID, when they don't use voter ID, when a poll is open, when a poll is closed, who's considered a lawful voter who isn't a lawful voter, what'll happen when that's your team versus your team? And one guy's in the machine and the other guy's the outsider. I don't think that's going to be very good for that outsider. 
And I just think we ought to have a set of rules. I think they ought to be very clear. I don't think they should be written by Republicans. And I think we ought to follow those rules each and every time. And if we do that, and if they're fair-minded, and the courts will play a role, I think people will increase their confidence in those results. And if my team loses all those races, that'll be on me. We'll, we'll have to just deal with the fact that we're not popular. I just don't think that's the case. I see it differently in the, in the following way. First of all, these blue cities that are so well organized with corruption, like I lived in a bunch of them. I, I, I have a hard time getting people to vote one time, let alone 20. I just don't accept the premise that what you're seeing is corruption as much as incompetence um, in terms of how long it takes to, to, to get the votes counted. But I think it's important for my audience to hear, look, you if you're a progressive, you probably never thought about the fact that it takes a long time for votes to, to get churned through in the big cities as a possible sign of some kind of disrupt, uh, corruption or malfeasance. It's important for us to understand how stuff looks to other people. You you do realize I don't really fault. I keep saying the big cities. Uh-huh. I think that they're the host for a lot of activity that shouldn't be happening. And I do think so. Well, I think it's ironic. I think some of these cities that are probably very diverse cities, I do think it's a lot of woke billionaires that are funding things that I think are not helpful um, to having free and fair elections. I hope more woke billionaires will give money for voter, voter mobilization. So please don't listen to my friends. <laughs> I'm for legal voter mobilization yeah, as well. I'm good. all for yeah, it. Anyway. But, but what do you think about uh, the people who are denying the election outcome, grabbing for the state, you know, sec- secretary of state roles and the governor's role? That scares the crap. I'm going to tell you right now, you want to want the number one thing that scares the crap out of Democrats and progressives is the idea that people who don't believe the last election was fair deliberately putting themselves in a position to be in a governor's chair or secretary of state chair to determine and put maybe put their thumb on the election. And and you're hearing people now, conservatives saying, maybe the state legislature should be able to just send their own delegates. I mean, how can you understand how that stuff just scares the crap out of us? I can understand in a country that's had a really troubling racial history with voting. I can understand why people of those racial minorities would worry that it's just the same people doing it to them again. Of course, I would understand that. Look, this is a, this is our birthmark as a country. I mean, we got it all wrong on that stuff. And people can argue over whether it was what they had to do to get the thing launched and they were going to fix it later or whether there's no way to fix the country because it started off with that racial birth defect. But, you know, my party had a lot to do with fixing those problems. And I'm not going to be put on the defensive for the, owning all these bad racial policies that kept blacks from voting and other people from voting. By the way, the Republicans were the ones that pushed through and uh, franchised for women to vote too. So like we actually have a good history on a lot of these questions. It doesn't mean every Republican did the right thing. It doesn't mean that everything we did was right. But you know, there's a lot of pushback to get to Democrats who now are trying to say that there are always the good guys. And I don't think that's a very fair read of history. And I would say this, that we know that as Republicans, we're going to get accused of racism be the first thing out of the box every time. Why don't we just have a set of rules that you always have to follow? Just follow them. And we should have followed them last time. And they could be easier rules, by the way, Van. You know, you talk about they made the rules tougher in Georgia because that's what... That's the reaction to, oh my gosh, these big city mayors are going to just be willy-nilly with the laws. We have to make it harder for them to do that. Actually, the right answer to that, if we were all dealing squarely with each other, would be, look, make it very easy to vote, make it all very transparent, but then nobody can try to change those rules to benefit their candidate. I think that's where we got to get to. You said some stuff I disagree with and some stuff I do agree with, but your, your bottom line I think any fair-minded person would have to agree with. 
that if there's a, if there could be a grand bargain on voting where there was a sense that we're not making it harder for anybody who can lawfully vote to do so and the rules are transparent and everybody knows what they are and they don't change i think that's that's common ground let me just ask you a couple of just quick questions, just, just lightning round type questions. You mentioned going overseas. You know, Viktor Orban scares the heck out of most progressives. Why do you think uh, conservatives like Viktor Orban of all people? And would you want to live in a country like Hungary, which he, I think he's you know, being more authoritarian? He doesn't want me in Hungary. He wants Hungarians in Hungary. That's one of his things is he wants people in Hungary to get married and have kids. And he's got the most controversial part of Viktor Orban's public policy goals is to use the tax code to incentivize people to have kids and be married. And marriage is up something like 30%. Abortions have dropped by half because when someone gets pregnant, by the way, she doesn't even have to be married. But when a woman gets pregnant, um, she has an immediate drop in her taxation level to the point that if she has three or four kids, she never pays taxes for the rest of her life. I don't know. Um, they're looking at declining birth rates throughout Europe. He's just trying to re reverse that trend because he knows it'll help the economics of the country. And I think people don't understand that he wants to keep a country in his Judeo-Christian tradition, and people view that as racist. And when Jews want to have the state of Israel and keep it mostly Jewish— you know, I don't think that's racist. I think there's okay for people to want to maintain their identity as a country. The way I see that one is that, you know, the Jewish people were almost exterminated and they really needed to have, to have a, what do you call it, like a homeland and a homestead. It's a unique it's a, example, unique, unique I agree. Example. Yeah. And I think that the, the reason I don't like Viktor Orban is because another way to deal with declining birth rates is just to have immigration and let people come into the country. You know, free, free flow of capital and labor has been good for free markets. And You know, he has immigration. His point is, is that he wants it to be legal and approved. This is the same argument we have in this country, which is I view what's happening at the southern border as an abomination and unconstitutional illegal immigration. Yet at the same time, as you know, America takes more legal immigrants than anybody. So it's like, it's, it's not a question of do you not agree with having any immigrationists, does that country get to set those immigration levels? Can you understand why a guy like Viktor Orban, who seems like he basically wants white babies and not brown babies in his country, um, and seems to be an authoritarian, like watching conservatives like him a lot would be scary? Yeah. I, and I also think there's just a European history, which is hard to ever get through with what happened, obviously, during World War II. And it's, this, it's a similar question that we face in this country. Van, this is really the question. With the good parts and the bad parts of our history, and our bad parts are really bad. I don't want to sugarcoat them. Can we get to a place where we understand our history and we want to improve in the areas where we were so bad? And the same question is for Europe. They made a lot of terrible decisions. And the people of Hungary, I'm sure their histories, you know, they're not proud of every aspect of their history. They have the right to set their course as a country. Should they be a racist course? Of course not. Should it be anti-Semitic? Of course not. If that's really what this is all about is like a white race, then of course I don't want to like propel the notion that it's good to have a white race. But the Hungarians also can't help what they look like. And what they're simply saying is, is that they're a tiny little country of 9 million people. They want to retain their Hungarian identity. And I think it's great that they want to encourage people there to get married. Now, you don't have to be white or Hungarian or Christian to be in Hungary. And by the way, this tax credit would go to you no matter what your religion is or what color you are, but you have to be a Hungarian citizen. And I, you know, who are we to tell the Hungarians, no, 
you know, you're just too little and you should be swamped by having a bunch of illegal immigration and the whole idea of being Hungarian will just slip away. I, I don't, you know, they have a different experience in America. We all came from other, almost all of us came from other places and some of us against our will. And that's, we have a unique country that once again, just like Israel's unique, America's very unique. It's hard to put it within the European context for these countries. I agree, which is why it's so weird for people in the United States to be cheerleading so hard for, for this one guy. Let me just say one quick thing. Abortion's down 50%, not because he outlawed abortion. Abortion's down 50% because he's being welcoming to that unborn child in the tax code. Get beyond race for a minute and think about that. No matter what color that child is, I think that that's a good thing. Maybe we ought to replicate that. Maybe we ought to make it easier for for young mothers to to accept this life. I'm still old-fashioned enough to be in the Clinton camp on abortion, the original Clinton camp, which said, you know, safe, legal, and rare. I think still that's where the vast majority of most Americans are, and I wish we had more policy you know, to move things in that direction. Um, but last thing, should Donald Trump run again in 2024? <laughs> What's your view? I don't know. I should ask you. But look, I, I think everyone should run for president who wants to run for president. Sure, sure. I have talked to him about this, so I don't have any inside information. But look, I think he's going to, I don't know if he's made that decision. I sure think he's w weighing in heavily to do it. And my view to Ron DeSantis or anybody else who wants to run against Kamala Harris or whoever's running, if you feel like God's calling you to run for president, just go do it. If you suck at it, you're going to do really bad. If you have the gift, you just might get there. And I think things are tumultuous enough in American politics that I think it's very possible that Donald Trump could be back in the White House. And I also think it's very possible that a Democrat could be in the White House. And we don't even know, we're not even talking about their name. And maybe that's the thing we still got going as a country, which is like, it's a live game. It's a live game. And, and you're one of the best people playing it on your side. And like, I, I appreciate our friendship. Or I appreciate our relationship. I learn something from you every time we talk. And I just think it's so important for people. You learned how crazy you are. That's like a double I, 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 knew, I, I knew you guys were crazy before. <laughs> no, no, just, no, but just, just really look, uh, I think that what's happening now is that people are down their own algorithmic rabbit holes. We aren't going to each other's houses. You know, we don't do anything together. And so we just go based off of sound bites and whatever is trending on Twitter. And I'm taking away from this conversation a, a lot of hope in that I do think we it may be the case that strong Democrats, strong progressives, strong conservatives, strong Republicans might be closer to a deal on voting that would make the next election go down better. I don't whoever wins, I just want the election to be the end of the contest and not the beginning of the controversy. Well, well, why don't I why don't, why don't I make two kind of soft challenges here? Number one, uh, let's get back to a prison. Good. Uh, I think that had a big impact on people. Yeah, I love that. And number two. Let's put the right heads around. If if I'm not motivated by racism and you're not motivated by cheating, then why can't people get around a table and say, actually, this is what a square deal looks like? Because we got to get there. Let's do it. The last time we shook hands on something, we made a pretty big difference in this country. Let's do it again. We'll do it. We'll That's do it true. on voting. That's true. All right, brother. Well, God bless you, God my bless friend. You Thanks too. for having me Appreciate on. Appreciate you. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door.
I think that was a very, very important conversation. I, there's a whole bunch of stuff I wanted to get into with him. I didn't get a chance to as far as, you know, critical race theory and a whole bunch of other stuff. But it used to be the case that it wasn't unusual for a strong progressive like myself and a strong conservative like him to talk and to go back and forth. And so I try to bring folks on that I don't agree with, but I think I do understand. I understand how there's a section of people in this country who do feel that the tables have turned against them. And whether you're talking about the tables have turned against them in terms of LGBTQ stuff or the demographics of the country or who counts and who doesn't when it comes to the culture, whether it's, it's, it's what's being taught in schools, that they feel that the tables have been turned against them. Now, I call that progress because I like most of the cultural direction of the country. I uh, like it a lot more than where it was 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago. But for, for them, it's hard. And I think when they push back, it's easy to lump them all in the same bucket. The people who are like absolute, horrible, racist Nazis kind of get lumped in with people who may have a different mix of views. So I took some encouragement from the conversation because on voting, which I think is really key, there may be more room for a deal than we know. You know, Democrats have tried to get the Voting Rights Act restored and a bunch of other stuff, uh, but it was more a progressive wish list and it didn't get anywhere in the Senate. And so now we've got the same crappy voting system that we, we don't like because of voter suppression on the left. Uh, on the right, they don't trust it because of their view of voter fraud. And nobody's happy. But it's conceivable that we could actually come together and get something done. That's not impossible. And that's what I love about the American system. It started off, you know, the founding reality was ugly and unequal with slavery and extermination of Native Americans and everything else. But the founding dream was pretty beautiful. We hold this truth to be self-evident that all are created equal. So, you know, as we try to close the gap between the ugliness of the founding reality and the beauty of the founding dream, uh, we're going to have to sometimes talk to people we don't agree with and try to understand them and look for some common ground. I saw some patches of common ground on voting that I promise you I'm going to follow up on and keep you informed about. But I'm going to go back into another prison with MatchLab and we're going to find some folks to help and we're going to keep looking for ways to make the country better. And if somebody as right-wing as MatchLab and somebody as left-wing as, as myself can do that, I bet you can find some people in your own life some people maybe you blocked on your Facebook page from high school or some people in your family you stopped talking to two or three Thanksgivings ago to maybe reach out to and maybe there's some kind of a breakthrough or miracle in your own life that's available. I hope so. I appreciate you giving us some time on Uncommon Ground and I'll see you next week. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credible. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Morais, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Pepperidge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwinteman, Brianna Jones, 
Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkeen, Vanessa Redbert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jockerman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast, American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.